Our passage today comes from Acts chapter 2, and we're really focusing on verses 42 to 47, but I'm going to start with verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, and this is Peter who's speaking, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And um, where we're starting from today, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's um, quite incredible timing, I think, that we're doing the book of Acts. And I really um, I don't think we should be amazed or surprised at how God has, through his spirit, just prompted David and Matt to be studying the development and then the spread of the early church in a time when we, the church, can't actually be doing what we would normally do to be that church. For those of you who um, might know my husband, Ash, you know that he's that big picture thinker. He kind of casts the vision out there and he very much thinks outside the box. So while I've been thinking about how do I get through home learning with four little kids, how do we get just the basics done at home? How do I work or maybe not work with kids at home? Ash was always coming up with the interesting questions right from the beginning. He might just suddenly come out with something like, I wonder what God will do with the church after all this is over. Then a little while later, he'd just pop up with another one. Oh, gosh, I'd love to research what the church looked like after each pandemic in history. What did God do with the church? You know, what's going to happen, do we think? What might be different? Well, for me, I'd just kind of stare at him blankly thinking, I wonder how we're going to get our groceries but Ash's questions um, are really quite important, aren't they? They're, they're intriguing. And if you actually think about it, they're quite exciting. What actually have we as the Western church in recent years been focusing on? Even if we look a bit further back into the remote history of the church, what was the focus of that church? So a few thoughts certainly come to my mind and you guys might have um, a few thoughts of your own. But when I considered the focus of the universal church, what came up for me initially was um, about the burning down of the Notre Dame Cathedral last year. It was a bit over a year ago now, and I kind of was quite struck by that and how the world um, responded to the burning down of a certainly a, a very beautiful building. Um, and it had a lot of um, cultural significance, certainly for the people of France, and it, that was probably beyond its religious significance. But even given all of that, the global response, I think, really mirrored the development of Western Christian thought. Church had become a lot about the buildings and not so much about the people. And, and certainly, I wonder, about that, not so much about that God who the people worshipped. 
Now, when this cathedral and many others were built, the grand scale of these buildings actually did have some theological significance. In communities where literacy was low or even non-existent, church buildings were designed to draw people into worship and maybe actually um, inspire a bit of fear as well. You can't help but literally look up when you're confronted by enormous spires and amazing um, windows that teach the gospel story in picture. But at what point, though, did the meaning of church become about just attending that beautiful building rather than the building causing us to look up at the one who's really just called us all by name? Another thought I had was about when I was a teenager in the 80s, the Pentecostal movement was um, at its peak in growth and along with that came a move to warehouse type buildings and this was really quite big and I remember there was a huge outcry, you know, you can't do church in a warehouse. As a teen though, I used to love cruising around all the local um, Pentecostal gatherings and it kind of felt quite radical to do church in a shed. Um, and I kind of reflect on our shed at the back here. Um, Such a reaction, though, um, at the time, spoke to the mentality of the Christian community. Church and its purpose was very much tied to the building and the type of building that you did that church in. In my lifetime, I've also seen that kind of wax and wane um, of house church movements where Passages like the ones we're looking at today are used to kind of move people away from larger, big gatherings to smaller expressions of the church. Now, often these types of movements have been reactionary in their nature, like a a pushback against the established church. But at least in this particular approach, there has been, I think, a, a genuine desire for church to be more, um, to be about more, I think, than the buildings. But if it's to be more than that, what should it be about? And I I have to say I cringe whenever I hear that phrase. Oh, well, you know, we just need to get back to the early church. You know, the New Testament church, as though that early church just had something particularly holy and perfect about it. When um, Ash and I were living on campus at the Bible College of Victoria, three times a day, we would all sit down to a meal together and at that table there would always be a different group of students and it was strategically different because it was set seating. So the combinations of um, students changed for every meal and lecturers who sat with them. There were many a meal when I would shake my head, roll my eyes at the name tagger whose job it was to organise the seating for allocating me with whoever it was because I would sit down and think, oh my goodness, not again, this person will not stop talking. And as you can imagine, in a Bible college that trained a lot of pastors, missionaries and evangelists, there were some really big personalities. It was also a hotbed of theological discussion. So you can imagine coming from a three-hour theology lecture or another three hours of the fourth gospel lecture and then sitting down to lunch with other young, inexperienced students, but many of whom felt they could solve the world's problems over one lunch meal. Now, one particular young man um, with a very big personality announced one day that when he graduated, he was going to start his own church movement and it was going to be called The Way, a term that we'll 
come across later in the book of Acts. And this church would go back to first principles and it would operate as the New Testament church did. Church as it should be, church as it was meant to be. And as with all great ideas at the Bible college lunch table, this idealistic young man had kind of forgotten to look at the book of Revelation and those admonishing remarks at the end where the churches, early churches are criticised for, well, one that always comes to my mind is being lukewarm and spat out of God's mouth. Kind of doesn't speak to the perfection that this young man was aiming for. The early church was not perfect. Instead, it was an emerging movement of God's people gathering together lots of imperfect human beings, just as we are today. So we need to be cautious that we don't put on those rose-coloured glasses and assume something of the New Testament truth, uh, church that just wasn't true. The church wasn't perfect because the people weren't perfect. So having said all that, as a little bit of a caution, there's certainly much that we can gain from constantly returning to God's word and the descriptions that he has provided for us of the early church and to ask ourselves, how does God want us to be his church right now? I think this is really important at the moment in this time where we're really experiencing a global reset What does God want of his church right now in the midst of physical isolation? And then what does God want of his church post-physical isolation? We would do well to be on our knees in prayer right now, praying for guidance about how to be God's church in our communities in isolation, as well as preparing for post-pandemic church life. Because if the history of other pandemics is anything to go by, The world will not be the same and the church has the potential to experience its biggest growth in over a century. So the questions that Ash thinks about when I'm thinking about getting dinner ready are actually super important. Are we ready to partner with God into the future? So let's look at the exciting birth of the church and see what God has to say. So our text today is actually a little bit different from most um, parts of the book of Acts. A lot of Acts, um, you'll notice as we go through, is what we call historical narrative. So not unlike um, some of our Gospels, it's full of stories that tell us about what the early church was like, gives us that little glimpse into what was happening. It's also got um, a lot of um, sermons in it. Um, We saw that referenced in last week's passage. But this text is a little bit different. It's a broad, general summary, not not particular stories, but a general summary of what the early church was like. Now, I did include those um, verses 40 and 41 from last week, just to keep us in that immediate context of this passage, where it says that about 3,000 people drawn by the Holy Spirit were added to the about 120 small group of believers who had already gathered together for Pentecost. 3,000. Now that is a powerful work of God and I cannot even imagine what it would have been like to be part of something so incredible. So what did these 3,120 or so people actually do? And that's where our passage comes in. Firstly, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So what does it mean that they devoted themselves? Luke doesn't just say they gained instruction under the apostles' teaching or they listened to the apostles' teaching, but rather that they devoted themselves. The Greek word that he has used has this sense of remaining faithful to, remaining constant to, faithful, constant. So a large group of believers remained faithful and constant to the teaching that they received. They were faithful and constant in their fellowship together, their breaking of bread and prayers. They remained faithful to and they remained constant. I kind of get this picture of Mary um, sitting at the feet of Jesus when I think about these qualities, being faithful to the teaching, being constant and consistent. And I can imagine small groups of these new believers sitting and listening to the teaching of the apostles with their eyes open, their ears tuned in, their whole body focused, listening. Whenever they had the opportunity, they were being faithful to hear this word proclaimed and taught. So what was it that they actually were proclaiming and teaching? And, you know, some of that's quite obvious. I mean, they would have been um, teaching what Jesus had said um, during his time um, before his crucifixion, but also after his crucifixion um, in that 40 days where Jesus spent a lot of time, we're told with his disciples, um, teaching them about the kingdom of God. So they would have been teaching um, those truths. But they were also teaching um, something that we've now come to um, know as the Didache, which is a Greek word that means the teaching. Um, And sometime around the kind of 80s, 60s, 70s, there was actually a written form of this teaching. And it's still referred to now as the Didache. The most expanded form of this Didache was produced in the mid-2nd century. But the form that these guys would have been using and would have been present in those very early churches was limited to two very basic instructions, two ways to live, the way of life and the way of death. And this written form was likely used as preparation for baptism in the early days of the church. It's likely that it was included things like the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that meant, his enthronement as the messianic king and lord and that was just so important to group that had a group that had started off mainly as Jewish converts so they needed to be have Jesus set in the old testament scriptures for them this didache or teaching would have emphasized that the coming of Jesus started the messianic age that the Jews had actually been waiting for a time of future blessing which they were actually now experiencing right then and right there. I just find it fascinating that even around the time of the ministry of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, the early church had a basic but written form of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. In a world full of polytheism, um, for a group that was you know, mostly still part of the Jewish temple and in their smaller communities, the synagogue, it was still important for believers to know about the life of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, the coming kingdom that he'd spoken of, and how to live that message of Jesus 
how to live that out in a very hostile community. It was important that they knew what they believed and why they believed it. Does that kind of sound familiar to us? Does it sound like this might be important for the church in 2020? Who are we as Christians in the midst of a hostile community? Who are we amongst the many religions that our society offers? How are we different? This is what the believers devoted themselves to. I wonder with all that input that we kind of have into our lives at the moment, all the knowledge, all our understanding, what do we devote ourselves to? Are we devoted to the Didache? Are we devoting, voted to the teachers of Jesus and the early church leaders? Are we consistently seeking out these truths? Are we faithful in gaining this teaching and this understanding? After all, we have the blessing of the entire Word of God, the entire revealed Word of God, not just this Didache or the Old Testament Scriptures. We have the whole good news story of God and it has been laid out for us. It seems to me that if there was ever a time for us to be devoted to the teaching, it's now. Our distractions are less, really. Our entertainment and socialisation is restricted. What better time to devote ourselves to the teaching? So what else did they, these early believers devote themselves to? They were devoted to the koinonia or the fellowship, the participation in life together, the sharing of life, which including, uh, included the sharing of material goods, um, which we see in verse 44. So they were devoted to the fellowship. They were vo- devoted to being together. Now, this was a very distinct togetherness. This togetherness was inclusive togetherness, something which was unheard of in the ancient Near Eastern world. Ethnic and cultural togetherness is clear right throughout Acts, right from the beginning of what we heard last week around the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where Jews from all over the known world were gathered and they each heard this good news in their own language. What clearer picture is there that this good news would now spread out to the known world in all those different known languages. This message was going to cross cultures, it was going to cross languages. So the fellowship included Jews and then a bit later Samaritans, after that Gentiles, the rest of the world. Throughout Acts we also see the inclusion of those with disabilities, even women unheard of in that society. We see different levels of the strata of society included. The rich, the poor, jailers, philosophers, governors and kings. This fellowship included all types of people and for that reason they were kind of difficult to characterise. You couldn't really put them in a box to say this is who they were. They were just so diverse. They were referred to um, in a number of ways in the book of Acts and you will see lots of different little phrases used. Um, those who were being saved, those who received the word, those who called upon the name. They were also referred to as the Galileans, the Nazarenes, the way. Remember the young man from Bible college? This is where he got his motivation from. They were also called the Ecclesia, which now is often translated church, where we get our word church from. And then finally, they were called Christians in Acts chapter 11. 
So this very diverse, eclectic group, what bound them together was Christ. Their togetherness was a taste of what was to come in the future kingdom of God. Their inclusive togetherness gave them insight into this kingdom of God that Jesus had talked about. People from all walks of life bound together in a redemptive relationship with the Messiah. This group then shared in the many blessings of that messianic age that Jesus came to proclaim. They shared their possessions, kind of not in a communist kind of way because it was all totally voluntary, but they did, they did share their possessions. They, they sold their lands and, and what they owned to give to those as they had need. They had a deep bond of togetherness. In this fellowship, it was just inconceivable that a person could belong to this group of believers and kind of do it on their own, the old Jesus and me thing. It just wasn't possible. It might be tempting for us to say, well, that kind of being devoted to fellowship, well, we certainly can't do that in our current context. We are, by definition, um, separated by physical distancing. We are kept apart. But I would challenge that that could be a very narrow understanding of the depth of this devotion to fellowship. Given that the homes in Jerusalem really, you know, couldn't have held 300 people, let alone 3,000. It's clear that their gatherings together happened in a lot of different ways. Verse 46 tells us that they were attending the temple together daily, so they were still getting together while they attended their normal daily worship. They were having communal meals together, and so you really can't imagine more than 50 or so people being gathered together um, for those kind of meals, and particularly at those times when they would share the um, really Christian parts of their um, fellowship, like the teaching that we've just talked about. So these believers were already spread apart, even in Jerusalem. To say that they were only devoted to togetherness with that very small group that they met with for meals would be a gross undervaluing of the devotion of these believers. They remained devoted to the care of other believers, even when they were separated by huge distances. Even in the Gentile world, as the churches started to expand and develop out into the rest of the world, they were still devoted to togetherness with the church in Jerusalem. And we see this later in Acts. These um, outlying churches were very poor themselves. None of them were very wealthy. But when the church in Jerusalem came under particular hardship, um, Paul went around um, gathering a collection for them. And these very poor people gave out of the little that they had to show their devotion to their fellow believers back in Jerusalem. So this type of deep fellowship of being bound together by being bound to Christ is not limited by physical closeness. It is a deep connection that recognises that I am joined to other fellow followers of Christ, regardless of race, regardless of social status or geographic location. The love of Christ compels me to show love, generosity and care. These early believers were devoted to having such a connection with others. This devotion to fellowship, this way of relating to each other and their communities in love and sacrifice is actually part of what drew the attention of those who looked on. Many people 
looked on and saw that, well, widows were being cared for. The vulnerable were being looked after. They saw the poor being fed. They saw sick people being cared for and nurtured back to good health. Verse 47 tells us that they then had the favour of all the people. This type of devotion to fellowship, being bound together with others, actually draws people in. It's something to behold, particularly in a society that is all about self and the survival of the fittest. Those who lived in Jerusalem could not help but notice the generosity and togetherness of these early believers, and they looked on with favour. So if we go back to Ash's questions, I did do a little bit of research on what happened to the early church during um, and following some of the great pandemics in our world. And I do emphasise a little research because it's certainly not the depth would that would satisfy Ash or many other great thinkers, but kind of enough to give me a glimpse. Um, and do you know what it looked like? It actually looked a bit like this devotion to fellowship that we've just talked about. Do you know that the countercultural love that was displayed by the early church in the middle of a second century plague, so we're talking about the mid, you know, um, 150s AD, that kind of time, it actually caused another massive explosion and growth of the early church. People were drawn to a community that showed sacrificial love, care and devotion to fellowship despite the cost to their own personal health and well-being. And in another plague, in the middle of the third century, again, the spread of Christianity was just amplified. Towns in Italy were abandoned. Kind of rings bells, doesn't it? There's a guy um, called Glenn Shriver. He's a, a current commentator, and he has reflected on the effects of pandemics on the spread of Christianity. And he says, and this line just really sticks with me, the plagues search us. They discover in us either the way of the flesh, which is self-preservation, or the way of the spirit, which is self-giving sacrifice. And I'll just read that again because it, it's something to reflect on. The plagues search us. They discover in us either the way of the flesh, which is self-preservation, or the way of the spirit, which is self-giving sacrifice. This is what the early church were devoted to, fellowship, meeting the needs of others despite the cost, reaching out beyond those structures that society had in place, which wasn't much at that time, to meet the needs of the vulnerable, the outcast, showing abundant love and generosity to their community, both within the church as well as the broader community. And we have that same opportunity to show devotion now in the midst of this pandemic. And I've seen it. I've seen it in our local churches and I have been privileged, I've been privileged, sorry, myself to see and experience this type of deep devotion from not only our local Christian church, but our Christian school. We have, and so have many others, been the recipients of meals, of special treats even, um, phone calls, texts and emails as members of our church and our school have displayed deep devotion to the fellowship with our family and others are looking on. For example, our foster care agency and other foster carers I know, they look on with wonder and awe 
Who knows how God will work in our community as people see our devotion played out? And we saw it again, didn't we, during um, and after the recent fires? How amazing was it to see our church reaching out into the communities of Koryong and beyond? Deep affection, deep love, deep commitment. This is devotion to the fellowship. Let's continue to partner with God in what he's doing as our world is in this great recess. So this group of believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it's likely that that breaking the bread, you know, referred to the remembrance meals, the Lord's Supper, as part of a larger communal meal. In these gatherings, they were putting in place patterns of life that would help to keep them focused on the centrality of the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They were devoted to remembering. They were devoted to eating together regularly as a broader family of believers. In these house meetings where meals were shared, they were also devoted to the prayers and likely they were an extension of the Jewish prayers that every family had every day. They didn't separate themselves from their Jewish Jewish, um, heritage or their faith. For them, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the fulfilment of all that their scriptures had spoken about. Worship in the temple or the synagogue now took on new and deeper meaning for these Jewish converts. The Messiah had come. They were experiencing the presence of God with them through the indwelling of his spirit. They were praising God always for the privilege of sharing in this amazing redemption story of not just themselves as Jews, but also the Gentiles. They were filled with awe, we read in 43. They were filled with a reverent fear in response to the signs and the wonders that were being performed by the apostles. Again, these signs and wonders were evidence of the presence of God's spirit being poured out on his believers. Just like when Jesus was performing miracles, signs and wonders were given as a sign, literally, or a signal that the kingdom of God had broken into this earthly realm. The messianic age was upon them and they had the privilege of taking part in such wonder. Imagine seeing the lame walk, the blind see, the sick made well. No wonder they were filled with awe. God himself was at work through his servants. Heaven was literally coming down through the power of his spirit and they were in awe. And the response of the community, they had the favour of all the people. People again were drawn to their fellowship. They were drawn to their generosity. They were drawn to their love. People were drawn to the power of God evidenced in signs and wonders. There was an integrity in their witness. What they proclaimed, they believed, and what they believed, they lived out. And the result? More and more were added to their number day by day. The kingdom of God had broken in in a huge way. The power of the Spirit was evidence and they were recipients of the grace of God pouring out from heaven and they were in absolute awe. We're also living in the age of the Spirit of God poured out into our hearts, poured out into the midst of us as his believers, his church, 
the people of God gathered in deep fellowship, not in a geographic space, not in a building, but bound together because we are bound to Christ. Are we awake to the work of God amongst us? Are we expectantly waiting for and asking for the Spirit to pour out His power on us in abundance? Are we challenged by Jesus' words, you do not have because you do not ask? We are the church. We are the gathering of the people of God. Our fellowship with each other surpasses all the barriers and includes all of differing backgrounds. Let's devote ourselves to the teachings of the Lord. Let's be bound to each other as we are bound to Christ. Let's be in awe of the mighty works of God, not just in the past, but right now in our midst. Let's be a people who are forever, forever praising God and having favour with all the people so that the Lord will add to our number every day those who are being saved for the glory of God the Father. And that's a big amen from me.